Hey folks, I'm Alex Dow. And I'm Katie Reif. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about movie theaters, our, some of our favorite experiences, a little bit of the history of them, and why we're so nostalgic for that right now. Remember movie theaters? Welcome to Film Club. So Katie, we're about, um, what is it, about a month now into uh, social distancing? About a month. Yep. Maybe a little more. If you went in early, good job. And you're a little over a month if you went in early. You're about a month and a, a few days. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like March, the weekend of March 9th was when all this really began. Mm-hmm. For, I mean, it's a strange time in general. Our relationship to time is very strange right now, I feel like. Um, yeah. I have some days where it feels relatively normal. And for example, yesterday, I feel like I looked up and it was 1230. And then I looked up again and it was 730 at night. I I don't know what happened. I've been experiencing some of that myself, too. I mean, there's just no change in your environment, really. You know, you're just in the same place. Um, uh, Obviously, everyone is is missing a lot of different experiences that they have in the world. Um, For cinephiles, I think a big part of that is movie theaters. Yeah. Um, Movie theaters have been closed since uh, around the time everyone started social distancing. Um, uh, Some theaters were sort of immediately closed their doors due to a lack of... I mean, the first thing that happened was distributing were actually pulling releases and postponing them. So movie theaters were suddenly faced with what are we actually going to show? And then a lot of places in America have put stay-at-home orders in. They've uh, basically said non-essential businesses must close. And uh, what that means is that there, I, I kind of doubt there's a movie theater open in America right now. If there is, it's in deep, deep, deep <laughs> Mississippi. Um, the governor of that state has been very vocally opposed to statewide orders. Um, yeah, also in deep violation of what we should be doing. I would, I would. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We won't dwell too much on politics, but there were some churches that insisted on having services for Easter, and now they are seeing some infections. Uh, those churches turned out to be infection locuses. So. In any case, movie theater's not open, and uh, I think it's starting to get to some people. I know that I'm already missing the movie theaters as an experience. This week, we saw a couple of op-eds go up, Yep. rather coincidentally, uh, both about missing movie theaters and about uh, what it's been like without them. Last week on Twitter, a, a, a particular clip was making the round from last year. It was uh, opening night audiences reacting to the big climax of Avengers Endgame, when certain yeah. things happen and we won't spoil that but uh, reacting is a, a, a mild word they are losing their minds they're going nuts actually yeah let's play that clip i, I want people to hear that It's hard to not hear that and feel a little bit of, regardless of what you feel about Marvel movies and regardless of what you feel about whatever that was paying off. And I can imagine even somebody going to that and feeling annoyed to be in that theater during that moment. But now, I I don't know. I mean, I hear that and it it makes me awfully nostalgic for being in a movie theater with a bunch of people watching a film. Yeah, this is the longest um, you mentioned before the show you've gone without being in a movie theater since... What, childhood? <laughs> probably childhood. Probably since, I mean, 
I started going to the movies regularly uh, as a teenager. I was, um, I feel like the summer of 1997 Mm -hmm. was when I became like, this is now a thing I do every week. Sure. This is my thing. This is what I do. This is me now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is who I am. (laughs) And probably since then, I I don't think I've gone more than a couple weeks without getting out to a movie theater. So this is definitely, I'm going through a little bit of withdrawal. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, the movie, a a movie theater is not just about the immersiveness of uh, the sound and picture. Although, of course, I I do think on that level, it, it remains the best place to watch a movie in terms of the actual technical experience, the technological experience of seeing a movie. I think movie theaters are still setting aside theaters that have projection problems or something. I do think that is the best place to watch a movie. And there is actually a psychological benefit to watching films in a theater as opposed to on a a screen at home. Uh, The blue light that uh, emanates from phones and from TV screens, it's beaming directly into your eyes. And that psychologically does shut down your brain a little bit. Um, It gives you sort of a deer in the headlights effect if you look at it long enough. But in a movie theater, you're not looking directly into the light of the projector. You're watching the shadows from the from the light coming out of the projector on a wall so uh psychologically uh your brain processes watching a film in a theater differently than it processes watching a film on tv Uh, that's very interesting I don't know if I knew that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it, makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. For me, it's also about time, though, and it's about your relationship to the thing that's on screen. The thing about it is that uh, in a movie theater, you do not have the capacity to pause. Mm-hmm. If you, you can go to the bathroom, but you're going to miss something in the movie. When you sit down in a theater, it's basically you creating a contract between yourself and, and the movie that's happening on screen. You say, for this 90 minutes, for this two hours, for this three hours, whatever, it's me in this movie. And I think we'll talk at some point about some of why some people actually don't love it anymore. Uh, And I think part of that, though, is that is people being on their phones. But in an ideal Mm -hmm. situation, all their distractions are gone. This thing is just feeling filling your field of vision. It's you in this movie. It is kind of like a cathedral. It's (laughs) for me. It's probably as as close to a religious experience as I have. If I could be a little hyperbolic about it. Well, sure. Um, Especially especially when you know uh, you go into a theater like the Music Box in Chicago, which is an old fashioned movie palace. That it's it's built up, you know, it's decorated like a cathedral. <laughs> it is. It very much yeah. is. And just during that period of time, there, there, you do not have the option to stop the movie. Mm-hmm. Or, or there are less distractions. Because most movies, I mean, Quibi aside... Uh, most uh-huh. movie, <laughs> most movies are designed to be to be to be watched. At least in conception, you watch them in in one sitting, basically. Right. Uh, that is ninety. It's a ninety minute unbroken piece of art that you experience, and I think movie theaters preserve that aspect of the experience. They say, "Well, you're here. This is what you're doing." Yeah, and I think time does move differently in a movie theater than it does watching a film at home. You know, there are films that I saw for the first time in the theater and watched them a second time at home. And just the duration of the film felt different watching it outside of that sort of hallowed environment that you were talking about. For sure. Well, and it's funny that you mentioned people being on their phones is kind of ruining the experience. That is a pretty common complaint as to why people say that, you know, people are so much ruder at the movies now But actually, in some ways, the movie going experience is more structured than it used to be. 
Uh, originally, movie exhibition, after the initial days of the Nickelodeons, it was based on a vaudeville model, and it was standard for a movie showing to start with a live act, and then you have uh, shorts, comedic or dramatic serials, and then you'd have a newsreel, and then you show the film. And that kind of fell apart with uh, the advent both of uh, sound and of the, the Great Depression in the 30s, and that brought about the double feature, which was initially offered as sort of a incentive to get people to go to movies, you know, more value for your money in a time of financial hardship. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you see these distinct eras in movie going. Um, So you had the double feature era and the studio system era where you had A pictures and B pictures. And that kind of broke up, not to get too deep in the weeds, but that kind of broke up in the late 40s with a famous, um, if you don't know anything about the Paramount uh, Supreme Court decision, it's very interesting to read about because it broke up movie theater monopolies. Movie theaters used to own theaters as well. And um, so theaters just bought whatever the studio that owned the place would give them. You know, they didn't really have a choice in what they booked. And that that all changed in the 50s. And so you started getting into this model that is very different from what we have today. Movies, theaters, you could it was culturally acceptable to just show up whenever at a movie theater because they would show the same movie all day back to back. And you could and you just came in and wherever the movie was at, if you liked what you saw, you stuck around and watched the beginning afterwards. But that changed. I mean, there's other stuff going on, too. That You know, there's the technological stuff with TV. But there's something very interesting is that the movie Psycho was actually a huge catalyst to change movie-going exhibition to what we know today, to where you buy a ticket for a certain time, you show up at that time, and if you, you don't show up on time, they don't let you in. That cha- Alfred Hitchcock insisted on having that for Psycho, and movie theaters resisted it because they thought that no one would want to no one would show up they thought that people would resent being told what time to show up at the theater but people actually really went for it and he insisted on the timed admissions because I'm, i mean i'm not going to spoil psycho if you've never seen it but it's got a huge I, it's a, it's a the statue of limitations movie. has probably has probably <laughs> passed on psycho but again yeah. if you haven't seen it i would recommend it because i do think the, the moment that you're talking about the moment mm-hmm. that he's trying to preserve is possibly the biggest surprise in the history of hollywood movies Right, exactly. Uh, and so, maybe since even, you know? Yeah. And so Hitchcock didn't want people coming in halfway through the movie and having the surprise ruined. Right. So that so they insisted on timed admissions. And when that worked really well for Psycho and Psycho was a big hit, theaters started saying, oh, we can start making more money by telling people they have to leave after a couple hours and buy another ticket if they want to see the movie again instead of just hanging out all day. So, (laughs) And it wasn't an instantaneous change. It wasn't like overnight theaters switched to time admissions, but it was the catalyst. And by the time you got to the late 70s, pretty much the only theaters, uh, one of my, something, a fact I like to cite is uh, the theaters were called grind houses because they would grind the film through the projector 24 hours a day. They would do it the old-fashioned way of just running the film all day long and you can come and go as you pleased. But by the time you got to the late 70s, that was pretty much only going on in more disreputable theaters in inner cities. And after a time, it sort of became a sign of you could buy more there than just some popcorn, you know? Like, yeah, um, right. <laughs> there would be drug dealers, perhaps, or sex workers at the theater. And um, so over... So it's interesting. One of the things that drives people crazy now, and they... 
and they're like, oh, people now are so rude. They just wander into the theater, whatever, whenever, and just talk and aren't really paying attention to the movie. That was pretty standard in like the yeah. 40s or the 50s. Any movie you went to go see had people wandering in and out at all times. Yeah, I sort of wonder when the idea of of this etiquette that that you and I surely adhere to and that I feel like a lot of serious moviegoers think of as like the code of conduct in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. I do kind of wonder when that became standard. And I it, would imagine around the time when, you know, time tickets became standard, probably like the, yeah. the 70s, the 70s or the 80s. Yeah. And, you know, we, we can talk about there are plenty of reasons why people don't like going to the movies anymore. And I think it does have to do with the, with uh, I, there are a couple things. I think one of them is one of them is the experience of watching the, a movie with crowds who are not behaving or adhering to that unspoken code. One might say mm-hmm. actually it's not unspoken a lot of the time, like things like being on your phone is is pretty explicitly called out before every movie in a multiplex now. Oh, like, d- yes. Don't, Even don't do multiplexes it. do it. Yeah. Like um, the Alamo Drafthouse became famous for their very draconian policy on phones. And I do want to clarify that I think that phones have made it worse. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that the smartphones created a whole new kind of irritation at the movies that is bad because when the lights go down and someone's on their phone the whole time, I was talking about the the projected image versus the image being beamed directly into your eyes. Well, having the light of someone's phone right there is incredibly distracting even if they're not talking the light from the phone is incredibly distracting for sure and unfortunately it that has become kind of if there's a whole group of people like you and i who are like who would never dream of taking our phone out during a movie there's also a whole group of people who go to the movies and now think of having having your phone out as sure why not why wouldn't i do that yeah I paid and, to be here. Yeah. Right. And I do think that movie theaters have slightly blurred that line a little bit, too, because mm. there are maybe it's not the theaters so much as movie studios themselves recognizing that people live on their phones now. But there's a lot mm. of you'll see like you'll see like uh, if you if you go to a movie, sometimes you'll see like the, the advertisements will say basically use the we, we go to a lot of advanced screenings here in Chicago as critics. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time the image that they'll throw up on the screen before the movie is like use this hashtag to tweet mm-hmm. about this movie, you know. Uh-huh. And it's like encouraging people to use their phone. And I think they would probably argue, well, you do that after the movie. But you're blurring those lines a little bit when you're saying, don't use your phone during the movie. However, please use your phone to promote us. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, it's definitely something that it's implied that you're supposed to do it after the movie. But in terms of public behavior, as you know, we're finding out with all these social distancing guidelines, a lot of times with human yeah. beings... You have to say explicitly, no, you absolutely cannot do that. For <laughs> sure. Will do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing, too, is that, uh, and this is something that I've noticed, is that some movie theaters, multiplexes in, in particular, will not play the film as brightly as they should. Mm-hmm. They're actually tampering with the bulb. I would encourage, uh, I, I hate to be the can I speak to your manager guy, but I would encourage <laughs> if you're seeing a movie and the image is not bright enough, there's a good chance that the theater you're seeing it in is uh, deliberate saving money and energy by by playing it less brightly than they should. Mm-hmm. I was talking earlier about how movie theaters are the optimal place to see a movie from, from a technical standpoint. That's only true if the theaters themselves are actually adhering to those standpoints. My opinion, not informed, just my opinion, is that this all kind of has to do with the decline of expertise in digital printers, digital projectors, excuse me, replacing projectionists. 
I think that's probably a big, big part of it, actually. Yeah. yeah. That, you know, the, the the job of movie projector is no longer one that, uh, I mean, they still exist, but they exist largely at, in, in terms of an exclusive task, in, ter- in terms of you're a person who is um, an artisan who does this for a living. Mm-hmm. I, I talked to somebody at True False, actually, about this, somebody who, who, has, who has done this before, or who does this professionally, and he will travel around the country to, to basically freelance project at mm-hmm. at theaters that need him to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and when usually, they have something that needs, like when they're showing something on film or something like it's that? It's often celluloid, yeah. It's yeah. often celluloid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think the truth, Katie, I think the truth is that, um, mm-hmm. and I, I don't speak for everyone when I say this, is that there are some irritations with the movie theater experience. Uh, sure. I have I have some cranky problems with, with some of the modern practices. I, I really don't like the... Um, I'm really not a big fan of assigned seating. Uh, I'm, I'm very old school in the sense that I feel like you should be able to sit wherever you want in the theater. And if somebody sitting near you is being a problem, you should be able to move. You think you should, you got to earn it, right? Yeah, exactly. You show up. Yeah. In the, if you want a good seat, you show up a little early, you know? Um, yeah. Uh, the other thing is that I, I don't love the dining experience either. I just think that that's a bit of a distraction during the movie. All of these things aside, I would say that most of the best experiences I've had with movies, a lot of them have been in have been in movie theaters and I'm not missing it just out of a sense of nostalgia because it's something that I've done regularly my whole life. I'm missing it because it, it really can be a transcendent experience to see something on the big screen. Sure. Yeah. I, you know, like when, even if you watch a movie for the first time and you absolutely love it, but if you watch it by yourself, you're kind of left sitting there looking around like, was that really that good or? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The the communal aspect of it Mm -hmm. is, is something because as much as other people in the audience can be a problem, they can also enhance the way that you experience something. Oh, absolutely. And I actually, you know, I know it's a, it's sort of like I was saying with human beings, you have to draw hard lines a lot of the time in terms of behavior. People will try to find loopholes and that's where trouble starts. But that being said, I actually kind of enjoy a little bit of controlled chaos talking about the compact between sometimes there's a compact between audience members too, particularly when you're watching less highbrow fare, you know, mm-hmm. like a, a, you're watching a Friday the 13th movie, a slasher movie in the theater mm-hmm. or something like that. Sometimes a little bit of controlled chaos can be really really fun <laughs> totally I mean it's funny that you mentioned that because I one of one of my fonder movie theater experiences is actually <laughs> seeing Freddy versus Jason on opening yeah game. that's a perfect one for people yeah. to scream <laughs> because the crowd in the crowd too was um, it was it was maybe made up of people who had their allegiances mm-hmm. so people are like cheering on different uh, people are enjoying it as a horror movie but they're also cheering on you know when it when it appeared that Freddy is winning or when it appeared that Jason is waiting. You get different uh-huh. different crowds cheering for it. I mean, that's the type of thing that you get at rep screenings all the time, at midnight screenings. Uh-huh. It really is a one of a kind experience, though, to see a movie with uh, and to be in sync with a crowd that is that is enjoying it as much as you are. Yeah, you mentioned horror movies, but I think pro- possibly the most memorable movie going experience of my life was at the Music Box in Chicago, which we talked about earlier. Uh, I was seeing the movie Roar, which is actually coming back to theaters now in the wake of Tiger King, but it is this really bizarre oddity that came out in the early 70s. It was one of the producers, uh, I, I, I 
forgive me, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was married to uh, Tippi Hedren. And he, they loved big cats and had hundreds of them uh, on their, just this land out in rural California. And they decided to shoot a movie with all their cats. It's called Roar. It is incredibly chaotic. Uh, <laughs> Melanie Griffith got mauled on camera by a lion and it made it into the movie because the poor woman, she was a girl at the time, these were her parents. She had no choice but to live on this place and be in this movie. And a lot of the movie is just the family trying to run away from the cats while dad is bounding around and just saying, isn't this great? They love me. And it's like, they're going to they're gonna kill you, dude. <laughs> uh, Noel Marshall is the guy's name. And so, yeah, he basically spent all the money he made executive producing The Exorcist on tigers and lions and cheetahs and leopards. And they made this movie called Roar. And when you're watching it, it almost feels like you're watching a snuff movie because these are (laughs) real lions and tigers and wild cats. And these are real children. And they are really chasing the children around. And that was a very memorable theater experience because I remember looking over the people next to me and be like, it felt illicit, you know? It felt like we were gonna get arrested on our way out of the theater. <laughs> and uh, people were gasping and screaming involuntarily because they were genuinely afraid they were gonna watch somebody get murdered <laughs> on screen. And yeah, that would not have been the same at home at all. There was just something like conspiratorial about it that was really fun. <laughs> Well, and I think you're hitting on um, what can be so so much fun about, and not just fun, what can be so emotionally satisfying about watching a movie with a crowd. Mm-hmm. And I think it is about, there's an, almost a communion that can happen sometimes between mm-hmm. everybody in a movie theater. And it happens a lot with horror movies where people are kind of feeding off of each other's fear. Um, I have distinct memories of seeing Paranormal Activity, the first one in theaters, mm-hmm. and just loving the way that you could sort of feel these shudders of unease pass through in waves across the audience because so much of that movie is, you know, it's a found footage horror film and every night the characters go to bed and they have a camera set up, a surveillance camera set up that gives a view of the room. And Mm -hmm. I think it actually works on audiences in a kind of sophisticated way because I think it it sort of trains audiences very quickly to to formally understand the parameters of this room and to understand the parameters of the game. It's like, okay, so the shot is never going to change, but you know that every night it's going to escalate a little bit. Right. And a lot of it is about scanning the frame and waiting to notice the first thing that's wrong in the frame, the first sign of, of the paranormal activity. And when you when I saw that in theaters, I remember you could sort of tell different pockets of the theater noticing the thing that was off at, at different times. Oh, that's really fun. It was so much fun. And it was just like a wave that was going through the theater. Yeah. I'll never forget that. You know? Yeah. Another, um, well, you know, when you were talking about kind of playing with form and expectations, that reminded me of, I feel really lucky because it didn't stay in theaters very long, but I saw a Grindhouse on opening night as a double uh, feature. Mm-hmm. And that was a really, really fun room. Everybody was having so much fun with the, uh, with the missing, you know, the missing real gag and all of that stuff. And people were just whooping and hollering and we all kind of felt like we were watching something that was special you know yeah for sure um and and it doesn't always have to be fun either it can be you can be sort of um my most probably probably my most memorable experience movie theater experience of all time was saving private ryan 
1998. I went with mm-hmm. my dad to see it. I remember my dad had a whole conversation with my mom because my mom was concerned about the violence. And my mm-hmm. dad was like, I think he can handle it. And I mean, at that point, I had been allowed to see movies that I should not have been allowed to see. I was 14 <laughs> and I had seen... I think at that point I had seen Cannibal Holocaust. My dad was right in assuming that I could handle Saving That's Private wild. Ryan. Yeah, Saving Isn't Private it? Ryan is nothing. <laughs> it's nothing compared to that. But, but it is a visceral experience. And the theater, you could feel, you could feel the gravity of the film mm-hmm. re- resting on everybody in that theater. And I will never forget, there's, there's one thing that happened in that theater that I will never forget, which is the scene where um, one of the grunts, I, I won't say which one in case you've not seen the film basically takes a bullet and is dying and he's like crying for his mother and this woman behind me just bursts into tears Mm -hmm. and is basically uh, from is like quietly crying through the rest of the entire movie and i remember finding that i mean because i mean if you go to the movies a lot people cry in movies but this felt in some way maybe it was just the context of the movie we were watching Mm -hmm. this felt like she was having a profound experience and we were all sharing it in a way yeah well, something sort of like that happened um, to me rather recently, actually. Last fall, I went to like an advanced screening of Portrait of a Lady on Fire mm-hmm. through the Chicago Film Festival. And, um, you know, if you've seen that film, it really builds and builds. And then the final sequence is just incredibly emotional. And I sat and cried all the way through the end credits. And so did the guy next to me. And we just <laughs> at the end, we kind of like patted each other on the back because we had had a moment <laughs> together. You know, we both sat and wept all the way through the end credits of the movie. <laughs> and that's what a movie theater, that's what the movie theater experience can provide you. It really, it really can provide you under the best circumstances with a communal experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you mentioned religion, but it's not that far off, really, you know, because people don't go to church and have that kind of communal experience the way they used to. And I think in some cases, you know, film and pop culture does end up filling that sort of need that we have to experience things together. Yeah. So, so yeah, Dowd, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, movie theaters as a communal experience and in some ways as a secular church. Um, which, is there a moment in film history that you look back and you wish, oh man, I really wish I had been there to experience that with a crowd. Well, I will say, first of all, there's countless moments. I mean, uh, when somebody asks, like, what would you do if you had a time machine? My very very nerdy, boring answer is that I would go back in time and see iconic movies with crowds on opening weekend. (laughs) 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 I I mean, I think it would be like if you pick the right movies, it would be like that endgame scene over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the one that... um, the one that really sticks out for me actually is Psycho. Mm-hmm. And I think a big part of that is that I really do believe that what happens about a half an hour into that movie, I mean, it's not just like one of the most iconic scares in the history of, of cinema. It's also, I think, one of the most radical moments in a Hollywood movie ever mm-hmm. to do what that movie does in terms of, I, I'm tiptoeing around a movie that's from 1960, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> to basically uh, set something up, to set up our relationship to the story via a particular character, and then to, to then say half an hour into the film like what the movie you thought you were watching that's not this movie i would yeah. love to see an audience well it's funny you brought up psycho alex because there is a movie experience that you had in real life that i am incredibly jealous of oh do uh, tell 
Another film that pulls a big surprise on the audience. I'm so mad that you were at the world premiere of Hereditary and I wasn't. And you were one of the first people who got to know about the big surprise in Hereditary before me. And um, it's such a psycho moment, too. I mean, it, it really is. is. It's it's one of the more, in terms of a film that is tied to the lineage of that classic, I think that it pulls that off better than almost anything I've seen since. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, and I, I mean, there's a whole other discussion to be had about that and how the film's marketing helped preserve the surprise and things like that. But I mean, that's one. That's one that definitely, if I could have uh, tagged along in your suitcase, I would. I would. Have. <laughs> I wish um, you could have. <laughs> but uh, well, you didn't know that was part of what was so cool about it. You didn't know it was going to be this big moment till it happened. But um, in terms of a communal collective experience, I think actually, if I could only get into a time machine and go back and see one, I think I would like to go see the original 1977 Star Wars in a theater. Uh. I've I've heard stories from my parents, from other people's parents, from people, and it, they do describe it as kind of a life-changing movie experience. I think people had never seen anything like that before, honestly. Yeah, exactly. And uh, which which I attribute honestly, I attribute its singularity, even though that's a film that is obviously riffing on a number of influences. There's a whole bunch of other old Saturday morning serials and Kurosawa films. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in the stew of that movie's DNA, one might say, mm-hmm. but it combine them in a way that felt radically new to people at the time. I say this, of course, having grown up in a world where Star Wars already existed. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was born in 84 and, that, you know, by then the original trilogy had all come out. But e- even as a kid, I could still feel the aftershocks of people's experience with Star Wars. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's one of those ground floor kind of things that you can say that you were there like the day that movies changed forever. All right, everybody, that's all we've got for you this week on Film Club. Please be sure to check out our bonus supplemental interview episode this week. We're talking to Ryan Ostrike, who's the general manager of the Music Box Theater. And while you're at it, please rate, review, and subscribe to Film Club on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of Film Club was hosted by me, Alex Dowd, and by Katie Reif. It was produced by Carl Blumberg, edited by Melissa Lorenz. Our sound mixer and finishing editor is Seth Hafer, and our motion graphics designer is Julie Mullins. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week with a new episode.